From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome sports fans, welcome statistics fans, welcome business fans, welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here this morning with my co-host, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner. Some combination of the four of us, including Cade Massey, here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 132. And, of course, actually, I know we're replayed throughout the week because I listen to us throughout the week. And, of course, we also have our podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, and lots of other stuff. Just go to your favorite browser and type in Wharton Moneyball. You can also keep track of us during the week. I've been doing a lot of tweeting lately at at WMoneyball. And, of course, you can always email us to our producer, Matt Datz, at at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And last but not least, at least for the last five and a half years, we've loved to bring you, the listener, into the show. It's very easy to do. Please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So another week, another week of sports, guys, another week of things that catch our eye. So first of all, how are you guys doing this morning? Good. Excellent. Good. It's a beautiful day, a little crisp. It's beautiful here in Philadelphia. I don't know if it's global warming, if, but you know it hasn't snowed at all really this year. It's been a lot warmer. Um, I actually have the data on that. It actually doesn't snow in Philadelphia fairly frequently. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> actually, we don't. We're in the south. I mean, that's not really, but I, uh, we're, <laughs> in a, we're in the mid-Atlantic, mid-Atlantic from, a, from yeah. a temperature point of view. So, obviously, guys, the story that kind of won't get away, and I know, Adi, you have some done analysis on this, the story that's kind of not dying in baseball right now, or in sports in general, is the Houston Astros and the cheating not scandal. Not dying. Yeah. yeah not, not only is it not dying, but I think there's it's another... Growing. Well, well, it's media, growing. And there's the another... The media needs something to talk about. Yeah, yeah I right think that's now. part of it. I think that's part of it. But I think another shoe, of course, is going to drop because we don't even yet know what they have found about the Boston Red Sox. And again, the reason it's bigger news, not just because it's the Astros and the Red Sox, but it's those were the World Series champs. I hate to say it. If the Kansas City Royals had been found to be sign-stealing, and they ended up 40 and 122, who cares? Right. Well, let me, but let me, in this let, case, let me just finish. In yeah. this case, it's because the two last World Series champs, obviously previous to the Nationals, at least right now, we don't have the report yet on the Red Sox, but there's an implication there. and so The implication just be because they hired Alex Cora after... Uh... Well, no, no. Oh, and and also the rumors. They I mean, actually, the yeah. room, again, we don't have... I'm saying, right, because of Alex Cora, and also they said there was some investigation into the Red Sox. We don't sure. have any proof yet. I'm why, just saying... Why, why do you that, think that's taken so long? I, I mean, to, to conclude, the Astros won in about four days, right? Yeah, so here's my here's my thought about it, is that um, it's what we're seeing right now, which is I don't know that the investigation necessarily is taking that long. What they're probably trying to figure out is, okay, punishment A it did not seem to go so well. In other words, punishing... It didn't go over well. With, it didn't go not with well the with the players and possibly and even the, the fans and yeah. the public. And so, so it's more of a public uh, yeah, kind of that's trial what, that's, in this case. Yeah, well, Those are always the best kind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> good, exactly. good point. Hey, look, well, let me just say one thing before I mean, we get I think to you're the data. Right. I want to get to the I data and the, the analytics. Data, and I, I want to talk about the, but the just, ethics of this. I know, but just to Shane's point... Um, I hate to say it, but in some sense, you'd rather go first. Like, I'd almost rather be the – if the Red Sox did what the uh, Astros did, which we don't well, know. Well, we don't think they did no, no, that, but I right? Said, but I'm saying if they did something, it's almost like you could imagine the 
I'll call it the public sentiment towards them. You could imagine it being worse in some sense, because right now we know the punishment for A is not being taken well. It almost has to be a more severe punishment. Well, okay, it's Except not necessarily. the crime could have been much less severe. No, uh, here's the problem. The Astros apparently did this for multiple years, had like half the organization <laughs> in on it. Has there been any implication that that's happened with the Red Sox? We're waiting. We're waiting. We're waiting. Okay, we're, we're, we're we're waiting. waiting. Let's, let's get, get some data. Let's get a couple let's 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 things. Let's trial conclude. I, I, want, I want to make a, actually a, a somewhat of a, a statistical point, an inferential point. We notice that it's the obviously the Astros, very competitive, won a World Series, have been in the World Series. They did this. And you might ask, did they get there because they were cheating? On the other hand, you could also turn around and say, well, this is a team that's done everything they could to be as great as they can and including uh, crossing lines. So I wouldn't necessarily say that the Astros won the World Series because of this. No. But it it is reflective of their, uh, obviously, counterfactually, we can't know. But this is a team that really was trying anything that it could, and and it was doing that on every level. Um, Be careful. I'm not excusing this. I'm just trying to recognize that that, uh, this is is a ruthless team. And, And in fact, one of the questions I have is, what can we learn from the Astros organization that is... Uh, something transferable to nothing. What can you copy? Obviously not this, but what can you copy? But now let's get back to some data. So the the um, the, the, the players are, are all congregating in Florida and Arizona and with spring training, and they are pissed. I mean, that is the, that is a kind way of, right. of describing it. M- particularly players from the Yankees, the Dodgers, people uh, who, even Mike who Trout, got, right, even, even Mike, Mike Trout. Trout, people who 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 got well. Mike Trout obviously is not on the other side, but but pitchers who feel like they got they got lit up because and that affects their contracts and their mm-hmm. their longevity. So many pitchers. Careers are are on the on the knife's edge, and a bad outing against the Astros can make the difference. So there's been a lot of, and you know, there's a lawsuit, and and uh, there's a, I didn't know there was a lawsuit. There's that, a lawsuit. I forget the name of the pitcher. Matt can maybe type it on my screen. Who who was suing, who was suing. the Astros and their players? Because he had a he had a for bad financial outing, loss. and he was for financial loss, right. and he was sent down the day after he had a bad outing. So, wow. so of course, what's happening well, now? That's it, what you would expect. B- baseball I has guess. has time honored traditions of which sign stealing is one of them, and one of the other ones is retaliation. It's not an it's not a pretty thing, but basically the 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 pitchers throw at the batters, and there's a convention, and everyone is expecting that the the Astros are just going to get. <laughs> thrown at. So here's the here's what of course happens. This is the now era of modern betting and there's a prop bet, a proposition bet out on the number of hit by pitches of the Astros across the season. All right, so let me ask you just a statistical question here. I've obviously heard about this. One of the things, matter of fact, we do over-unders all the time here. And by the way, I want to give our producer, Matt Datz, and our assistant producer, Zach Grapkin, a lot of credit. We all stare at these and say, wow, these all seem to be on the knife's edge. So can you give our listeners a sense Mm -hmm. of how do you even set an over-under? Like, how how is the hit by pitch, do you think, set in this case? So it's interesting. So so let's get get to this. So over-unders, let's just show the payoff structure in an over-under. Just like the way we do it in, in the show at the end over under you win if you're if you, you you can either take the overside or the underside if you're over if it if it matches you you win and if it doesn't you lose if it's a tie it's a push but in of course a bet there's 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 uneven um, odds so if you have to risk you risk 110 to win 100 right so that that extra ten dollars that the loser has to kick in is is considered the profit to the casino so the casino or the one offering the bet one would argue and this is very important that they should just simply line it up set the odds so that or the 
over-under so that it goes about 50-50. And this is what our producers do for our over-under. They don't know what we're going to say, but they presumably try to figure it out so that a reasonable person is sort of indifferent to either side. And if you look at our historical su- success rates, we're hovering right around the 50% mark. Never I mean, mind. I'm at like 53%, just saying. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you guys are around 50%. No, I, I'm, I was... That's not, that's not I'm just kidding. Right, just kidding. Right. Look, I take great pride. I'm considerably lower. <laughs> yes. So what I'm yeah. planning on doing from now on is doing the what the you know the anti Jimmy the Greek thing. You guys probably remember this. There was you guys yeah. probably weren't paying attention to this back in the 1970s. Jimmy the Greek, who was a famous guy on CBS, yes, remember him, who yeah. had racist racist issues. But let me talk about the prediction part. At one point, he had gotten like 27 consecutive picks wrong, and people were convinced he was trying to sway the odds in the other direction. So a lot of sharps were betting whatever he said were yeah, betting the, the opposite, opposite way. The more so modern I, day version of that's the George Costanza, where you get, you, you bet the opposite of your. <laughs> well, that's intuition. what I'm planning on doing now. In fact, I'm yeah. going to have Zach Zach Drapkin uh, track this. When we do over unders now, whatever my first instinct is, I'm going the opposite direction. Right. Nice. I'm going to nice. see if I can get slightly above 50%, because right. I know by picking, I'm under. Yeah. Now, here's the thing that's interesting about the casinos. You think that they've got a sure thing, they can just take the prop. Turns out, that's not enough money for them. So what they really want to do is is take a side. So, they, of course, they get the, the, the sure thing bet. But and so what they often do is they recognize that the public has biases, and they'll make bad bets, and they'll let money ride on one side and don't let it match on the other side, what they would consider to be the correct side. So they're guessing kind of how the public they're is guessing. going to bet poorly. Right. And so now sharp money will come on and recognize it's a bad bet, and that helps them mitigate their risk because they're – so now that gives them money on the side to pay off the other side. But, of course, it also diminishes their expected value. So the big casinos don't really want the sharp money. And that's why there's a lot of controversy right now with, with open betting where the biggest casinos are like trying to make sure like really good bettors like Rufus Peabody are not allowed in. I think William Hill right. is, is targeted with this. And the reason why they do this is because they're making a lot of money on the public's bad betting and they don't want the sharps taking, you know, cutting into their profit. But, wh- but a smaller casino would do that to, to, uh, to cut their risk. But so- on what basis would a casino or anybody setting a line be able to predict much better. Like, let's even say, first of all, they have to get the 50-50 point. Let's imagine, right. and then they have to decide which side to go on. So no, I have three questions for you. So one question is, why are their predictions so good? Maybe their initial prediction is miscalibrated. Second, how do they ha- know exactly where the public sentiment is going? By early betting, and well, then yes. they move the line? So this is something where we would need an, an actual better to come in and, and give give some reality check. But I can tell you what I've inferred from listening and from talking is essentially they come up with an early line, and, and they do do exactly what you think they would do. They'd look back at historical data. They would kind of look at frequencies and sort of set something that seems sensible. Well, and if it's a bad line, the sharps come in and jump on it, and then and they realize immediately it's a bad line and they'll move it. Now, if the now sometimes you don't know what the public's going to do. Now, most proposition bets aren't very heavily bet, but something like this might be really heavily bet because the public is interested. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. Mm-hmm. The public loves overs. They love because overs usually means the thing is going to happen. And the public loves to bet that the thing is going to happen, whether that's um, Patrick Mahomes is going to have 350 yards or, or if um, you know, something is going the to happen, score the, the touch or whatever game. it is. Yeah. The number of wins of a team. All these things. So the public is well known to bet the overs. We can call them the overs, the yeah. things to happen. And so if you look at the line, let's get to the actual yeah. data here. So let's, let me just be clear, just so everyone knows. This is the over-under on the number of batsmen Plunk. hit by pitch mm-hmm. on the Houston Astros in the 2020-20 season. That's the over-under we're talking about. And again... The reason why this is interesting to betters is because people are saying, you know, in baseball, if the commissioner's not going to get the job done, we're going to get the job done. And so a lot of people believe that the Astros are going to get hit by pitch all the time. So tell us 
what the over-under line right. is set so the, at and tell us okay, the so here's the background. Data. So 83.5 is the over-under right now. So just to give everyone a sense, roughly <laughs> that means every other game, That's since right. there's 162 games, every other game someone's going For to... For reference, what's the average? Well, that's uh, we're so, going to so, so, so actually, one of our listeners tweeted out uh, uh, to me on, on Twitter what the average is, and the average of the last three is a 63. Okay. For every team or for the Astros? For all the teams. And what's the, all the teams. And the standard deviation, deviation, great question. Always great to hang out with statisticians. They know exactly yeah. what to ask. 14. So if you believe in natural variation, approximating uh, empirical rule. So it's about 20% rule, probability? Looks like it. Maybe yeah. a little less than that. Well, yeah, Somewhere in that range. Yeah, I mean, so, cause we're, let me just less. tell the listeners the math I'm doing. The difference between 63 and 83, is roughly, is 20. Yep. Standard deviation is 14, so we're about a standard deviation and a half. The mental math I'm doing here is I know 68% of the probability is within one standard deviation. So that means that leaves 32% in the upper tail, and I'm roughly saying another half a standard deviation probably takes us somewhere so, to around. It's, it's actually about lower. So, so if, there, if, there was, lower, if, about if I change the question to be like, you know, the team with the most hit by pitches this year is going to be the over under and that is 83. You take the over on that because it seems like most yeah. most oh, years sure. you would expect right. to see a team. It's just we're betting specifically on well, Houston being that just team back this to your, year. Just back to your calculation. This is great because this is why we're statisticians. There's 32 teams in Major League Baseball. Let's just say for rough numbers, the odds are 10%. We would expect three teams to be in the right tail to be mm. above 83. That's right. Matter of fact, and certainly the largest we would expect certainly to be greater. And now, this is this is where the insidious nature of betting comes in. Well, of course, the Astros are going to be the largest this year because of the retaliation that's going to happen. That's right. So that means it's like, it's a lock. But people are saying $100, it's a lock. $100,000 so, so, on this. So I mean, our, come on, it's listener, a certain bet. Our listener, Chris Inman, now give his name out, he, he points out, he says, this isn't that crazy because... It's too, low. it's too it's low. A, well, it seems I, like a gimme, but I don't. A, I don't. You, bet you could counter house. argue. I mean, Manfred's already come out yeah. and said, well, "Don't do it." Mm-hmm. So you could argue that, like, if you go, you know, if any team's not going to be hit by pitches, it's going to be pitchers right. feeling retaliation. Well, let me ask you guys retaliation just, from the league. Let me ask you guys automatically bench, kicked out yeah. the game. Let me ask you guys just a more general question: Why can't the kind of calculation and data that Adi brought to the table? Why can't people do this for everything? They do. Like, but they, the good betters do absolutely. First of all, the, one of the reasons why it's, they don't do it is that, well, uh, this is what difference between a professional. So what a professional does is they have access to the databases sitting right in front of them, the, right. when, and they don't even know what the props are going to be. I mean, some of them are, t- are traditional; and they come out, um, but you often have to wait until the last closest possible to see who's playing and, and all those issues. So being able to move quickly and do this calculation usually gives you an advantage because but in the this casino, case, this is a season long thing that. You know, isn't well, what's going to happen here is it's the line is going to move, and it's actually we should revisit this in in a few weeks and see what it has changed mm-hmm. to, and that's often highly informative. And it's, so, what typically would happen is the early line comes out maybe a little bad, and then you want to jump on it as quick. But if as your possible. over theory is correct, we should see this line drift upwards. If you if that over theory is correct, that, I, mean, I said I said yeah, if sure. the over theory is correct, it, then it we would drift up it. upwards. It's because people are going to continue. Well, what's depends. the record? Just to kind of get yeah, the that, I don't know. Any team with uh, with Don Baylor me, on it, probably. Pro- uh, probably so. <laughs> but let me just let me comment on Chase. One. I mean, back, back, when Pedro, back when Pedro was pitching, he probably helped out. He got hit by pitch, I think, thirty times once in one season. Right? That's true. So uh, this is Eric Brado, professor of marketing and statistics. I'm here with my co-host this morning, professor of statistics Shane Jensen, professor of statistics Adi Weiner. Some combination of us and our co-host Cade Massey here every Wednesday morning live here, eight to ten a.m. on Sirius XM One Thirty Two. If you want to join the conversation, if you want to talk. 
talk about your hit-by-pitch moment, uh, please join us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Another thing that I actually thought that was interesting, Adi and uh, Shane, about this was another people were another a lot of baseball players were saying Manfred's helping the Astros cheat again this year. And you might say, well, how is that? Here's how, and it relates to what you just mm. said, Shane. If you hit a batter on the Astros, you may get thrown out of the game. Yeah. So what the players are now saying is, you're telling us we can't pitch inside to the Astros? So now the Astros know. I'm just telling yeah, you. No, the, I uh, now I know. I mean, the Astros, matter of fact, the way I think all really of us for agree. Fairness, for fairness, the, I, I mean, like a weird fair. I, if he wanted to react to this with any kind of punitive thing, the fair thing would be this year. You hit somebody with a you hit a batter with a, a pitch, you're out. Right, but no, no. Again, and then, and then at least there's no advantage conferred to a specific. But no, team. no. But I'm saying what they're saying is you're now telling yeah, them yeah. that the ball won't advantage. be on the inner half yeah, of the right. plate. Yeah. you just helped them again. Yeah. Yep. By the way, let me just tell you. Thanks to our producer Matt. That's uh, the record. Is the 2008 Indians 103? Unless we want to go back to the 1898 uh, Orioles, and it's 148. Right, right. Right. But the no, record, by the way, I was wrong. It's not Don error. Baylor. Don Baylor is number two. He had 35. Oh. But the actual record is Ron Hunt in 1971 wow. with 50. Oh. 50! <laughs> one guy, one season. But the thing is, is, I mean, getting hit by a pitch, I think, is highly predictable from year to year by the batter. Mm-hmm. And therefore, maybe this is a good model that just looking at the natural variation well, me, among the teams is ask, not the right way to do it. Yeah. But, by the way, it's a, it's a batter stat. And that's the thing that's important. The hit by pitch, like the walk, is not a pitcher stat. Yeah. It's a batter stat. Just Chase Utley, anyone remembers in Philly, he would lean just in. Just one and comment. Just one Dustin comment. Pedroia was great. That one comment about the, a, a big historical moment that happened with hit by pitch. You guys, being a Red Sox guy, you would remember this. Him. When, yeah, yeah, I'm pointing yeah, okay, at Shane right, right. here. Uh, not you. Know that. Shane. <laughs> when, when Ted Williams was going to hit 400, and he had a doubleheader the last game of the season, and then he was already hitting 400 and decided he wanted to play. The coach went to him and said, you could get hit by pitch twice and you're not hitting 400. Because, by the way, it counts against your batting average. Mm -hmm. And it is a plate appearance and it's not a hit. And so people were like, what if you just get hit twice in this game? And so that's one. I always remember that about hit by pitch. That was kind of one thing. Um, The second thing I would say is I'm interested in your response to the data that was put on my screen here. We've now got another data point that the maximum is 103. So let's be clear. If the mean is 63, the standard deviation is 14, supposedly. It is, that's the number. It's changed, no, by no, the no, way. No, no. So right, 50, okay. 51 was I 10 know, years but, ago. I know, so, but let yeah. me get to that yeah. number. So now, according to that, we've never observed a, a, never observed one th- more than three standard deviations away from the mean. So I'm just trying to, we're, we're statistics show here. I want to ask you, does telling you this extra data point about the maximum change your beliefs at all that maybe the distribution's not normal, maybe the tails aren't as thick as we think they are, and that everything's maybe scrunched up more around the mean than you are? So maybe 83, I, wasn't, I wouldn't evaluate it, I wouldn't give it as much probability as I was before. Well, we don't, even know if it, we don't even know if it's a symmetric distribution. We right? don't. No, we don't. Just, by, just for our listeners, it could be... What's called, by the way, just to make sure everyone's good, when I use the word left skewed and right skewed, imagine a distribution with a tail that goes off in one direction. Left skewed means the tail is to the left. 
Right skewed means the tail is to the right. Here's what I would say. Given that the max is 103, this is probably a left skewed distribution. In yeah. other words, there's a, probably a longer tail to the left towards zero yeah. than there is to the right because we know that the that we know that the maximum is. I just thought it was an interesting statistic. Yeah. Yeah. If yeah. I add you a data point to yeah. the maximum, does that change anything about your prediction? It does. It, 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 it's it's. It's it's about a standard deviation away from the maximum. It's less than a standard deviation. No, it's about a standard deviation. A little little more than a standard deviation, yeah. which means that you'd think that that's a pretty remote event. I think you know. I, I mean, how do you think this, guys? Guys, let me ask you. How do you think? By the way, uh, thanks to Matt also putting on our screen the reason why the Red Sox. Rob Manfred came out and said why they haven't announced it yet. There are a couple of players and people they want to re-interview to hear some more about the facts before they announce any decision. So that's what's kind of delayed things about the Red Sox. But let me ask you just another question. Matter of fact, our associate producer and sound engineer, Deion Simpkins, and I were talking about this before the show from a historical perspective, because baseball seems to care a lot. You know, we have these steroid people, alleged, that aren't getting into the Hall of Fame. Why don't you just do this simple thing? And I'm just asking you a question. Just vacate the 2017 title. Oh, wait, I'm not asking you. No, no. I'm not asking you to say the other team won the World Series because we don't know that counterfactual. If you have doubt, just vacate it. Nobody won the 2017 World Series. Do you like how they do that in college football? Because that's the only precedent we have for this type of thing, Well, that's not true. You're talking about Jim Boeheim in college basketball. So or, or, Jim know. Beheim doesn't have, I forget how many, 200, 300 of his well, wins. Done the, they do Joe the Paterno, they do Joe Paterno, Paterno or, or they, vacated yeah, yeah. a bunch we, of wins. We, the we, we just kind of have to, then, then we're stuck talking about an entire season worth of games and kind of pretending like they didn't I, I'm happen. I'm not in favor of it. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not in favor of it because for, for a variety of different reasons. And I, mean, I know this is becoming an increasingly unpopular opinion, but I guess I have to say that one thing that I've noticed is that ethical lapses are much more condemned in other people than they are in oneself. Um, and that, of course, is That's natural. And that I'm listening to the players. And the fact is, is that this is something that they wouldn't be against if it had been on their team. And and the fact yeah. and, and I, I think it's also quite complicated. Certainly, I mean, it turns out everybody knew the Astros were doing this and to then may not have known the degree or to right. the extent. But everybody knew this was doing this. And one thing that they noticed and some of the data gatherers have pointed out that the weak teams you talked about, the you know, weak. Kansas City Royals teams, they didn't care. Um, but the stronger teams were changing well, up their course. signs. The Yankees in, in the World Series were about changing it. up their signs every every four. And the fact is, is that changing signs has always been the countermeasure yeah. to sign stealing. And finally, I mean, it's not that like they invented, I mean, the code breaker thing everybody's talking about, the Excel spreadsheet that they yeah. used to, is perfectly legal. That's yeah. not the problem. Well, so you let, know, me, let me just say, we can agree to a disagree. You know, I'm an old crotchety guy when yeah. it comes to this. I'm not letting any of these steroids guys in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. I'm, I know you're not. Vacating I'm, I'm vacating. I'm vacating. I would vacate this title. You're not would you vacate like, titles because of steroids? The difference is, let me say why the difference in my mind. This it doesn't make it team. right or wrong. It, yeah, it, yeah. This is a team thing. This was a coordinated team thing by the manager of the team that was known by the players that I believe was known by management. And so this was a. So, co- if, the, so if the management knew a, a player was using steroids, you'd vacate that. If a if a team encouraged, team was, was encouraging, was encouraging the players yeah. to using steroids. As a matter of fact, you could go back. Fair question. You could go back to the eighty nine or ninety A's and ask uh, how much did Tony Larusa know? How much did the owners mm-hmm. of the A's know? And if you knew that they were systematically not only just break, if they were breaking the rules, if they if you know if I don't think steroid testing was done back and in eighty nine. What, what if your team and acquired a player that you knew was on steroids, like say a Jason Giambi, for example? 
Acquired. Oh, Acquired. Would you vacate everything from that point forward? Well, you're bringing up the obvious other point. I'm the not more a vacator. Ethical, no, you're bringing <laughs> no, up the other point. No, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's a slippery slope. Yeah, I, 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 do we agree? Because where do yeah. you draw the line? Yeah, yeah. I'm not where, in favor. I, well, let me transition to a more statistics-related mm-hmm. topic to this, <laughs> yeah. which is around what I'll call counterfactuals. Yeah. So this was a term that Shane used, and you used as well, Adi. Tell our listeners why, even if you could prove that there was a measured effect why in baseball especially? First of all, what is a counterfactual, and why is it so hard to do in this setting? All right, give it a shot. A, a counterfactual, imagine a, a universe where this didn't happen, but everything else is the same. So it's called counterfact because it's not reality. But every, the whole idea is that it tries to isolate the, uh, the impact of one single factor, keeping everything else the same. This is, of course, the holy grail of science, right? Yeah. To figure out what causes what, what we call causality. It's why and, people and, and, run and, and, randomized experiments. Right, you and, keep everything else the right. same. Some people get the treatment. Some people don't. You now have a causal effect because you know randomization is what led to the assignment, and you, in some sense, statistically at least, you right. have kept everything else the same. And so that, you're right, that is the heart and, and, and foundation and of so science. so what we can't do in the Astro situations, we can't replay the World Series or even know what would replay happen. the entire season. Or the season yeah. without them cheating, help, hoping, holding, yeah. holding everything else constant. Why couldn't you do the following? I'm just, just, just tell me the following. Let's imagine... Do you, we all agree they have, let's call it, let's imagine, I don't know that this is entirely true, let's imagine you had video of every game. Of the Astros, which you probably do. Mm-hmm. We do. Let's imagine you had sound for every game. We do. Okay. So let's imagine you have that. What would stop you from saying, okay, what I'm going to, my counterfactual is I'm going to put in the marginal probability on an at bat of, simulate the marginal probability on an at bat what a player would do. So I'll make it up. Jose Altuve hits 310 normally against left-handed pitchers. How do we know that Jose Altuve does that when half of his career statistics are apparently under this cheating All right, effect? So now we're getting so Now, <laughs> now we're, you're getting why it's hard. We're having it. a discussion. Yeah, yeah, we're here yeah. on Wharton Moneyball. No, no, this is no, what no, we do. But I think so, one no, no, let me just finish. Yeah. What Shane is talking about is, yeah. I'm assuming it that there is some underlying that there's a baseline that you could use to do some simulate, but again, here's another... What we would call, by the way, a control. Yeah, What you're trying to establish is what often happens in non non-randomized experiments that we call historical control. Yeah. And what Shane points out is historical controls can be crap. Right? Well, so, well, or no, 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 it's no. very hard to kind yeah. of estimate a good counterfactual. No, what you would have to do yeah. then is, I'm just using Altuve as an example. I don't yeah. mean to pick on him in any way, except him not allowing them to rip off his shirt looks suspicious. But regardless, it, let's, does. it does. It really does. Let's imagine you took all of Jose Altuve's at-bats you made some probabilistic assessment of which ones were cheating at bats, yeah. and then you use the remainder. But I agree with you. Even I mean, that's a it's very di- so it's many so, assumptions yeah, and that are so going on here. In baseball, because you can even if you did that, even if you said like, let's say, even if you were pretty confident that you know that um, the sign stealing raised Jose Altuve's probability of success at the plate by like you know ten percent or five percent. This, you know, if you, you, what, the, to do a real counterfactual for like whether or not they still would have won the World Series, you have to simulate the season. And so even this like underlying change of five percent, so it's so stochastic. Like, like Jose Altuve, does that mean he doesn't hit that one walk off home run? I mean, he could have still, you know, he, he has a 5% less chance of hitting well, in, in, you. Your, in your counterfactual you just, of hitting that walk-off home run, you. but I, he probably still does it. I haven't seen an analysis of this or any even maybe hypothesis of this. I think a term I've used for the last five and a half years on Wharton Moneyball, I've always said I'm an effect size guy. Yeah. Does anybody know 
how large an effect we're talking about. Like, let's imagine, let me just finish, let's imagine I'm a batter, and I'm facing Justin Verlander, Garrett Cole, whoever the great pitchers are, and I know that a curveball is coming, I know a fastball is coming, let's say I know the pitch is coming. Does that turn a 270 hitter into a 350 hitter? I'm just trying to, you said 5%, I just want to know how much is it? Do we have yeah. any The sense? claim is that it's a lot. It's what, a lot. And this is, we talked What's about this, a lot? We talked about this last week with the strikeout rates dropping. So strikeout rates dropping from 30 to 20% well, that's is, huge. is substantial, and yeah. you just think about that 10% more additional balls in play. So 10% of 100 points in a battering average, and not, not maybe a certain fraction of them have to get hit. Hits. So that already says about a th- given the rate on which balls in play turn into hits, which is about three thirty five percent. We're looking at about a thirty percent. 30-point increase in batting average, just in decrease in strikeouts. Here's another data point. Hank Greenberg hit an OPS of 1.5, 1,500 in, in common parlance, during a month where he, he openly talked about having, how he was stealing signs. He had mm-hmm. accomplished stealing signs. And he, I mean, he was a great hitter who hit 1,000 OPS regularly. Yeah, but, that's... Um, but apparently, the bottom line is, is that you can lay off those horrible diving breaking pitches, so which you don't, we, we can't could tell. A, we could actually do a randomized experiment to actually get that effect size, right? We could get a bunch of major league hitters and a bunch of major league pitchers together, and we could actually we get the well, side to the hitter yeah, like boy, boy, randomly be, half I know, the but time. Let's be scientists for a second. So well, that's a science no, 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 yeah. I know, but no, but let's be scientists now for a second. So what's not accurate? Well, it's not in a game situation right. in a real right. ballpark. Right. Maybe it is in a real ballpark, but I'm just saying. Maybe for weeks in the baseball no, season, no. we could actually. Experiment. But this is why this is why these counterfactuals yeah. are so hard to imagine. Because yeah. you're right. I thought about it. Just get a bunch of pitchers and batters together. Yeah, but they're not. It's not a real game situation, and right. who knows if it's fact. But I like that analysis of just looking at the reduction in strikeout rates, if those balls go in play and what the batting average is, here's On how much, play, yep. here's how much mm-hmm. difference it makes. And then, if you think about the average, it's not going to be a single. You could think about what's the effect no. on slugging percentage or OPS, and then all of a sudden that you can translate to wins. You can start, and you think about if, 20, you know, if 12, 13 hitters on a team do this, you could start imagining thinking of, at least, it's not is it worth one win, five right. wins, ten wins? Yeah. What's the number? Right. Now, there's all kinds of underlying information turns out not all players were in on it. Some were in on it more than others. And others, of course, are, would benefit or, or, or not benefit from as the much technique. As I, Dion and I were talking about this before the show. I, I'm not buying any of that. So even though he's now a Yankee, Garrett Cole, I didn't know any of it. So wait a second. When he's sitting on the bench... Well, he's the, the pitcher. He's I, not, no, no. But he yeah. <laughs> last time I checked, when your team is batting, he's sitting on the, on the bench. bench. Right. What does he think this banging going on is? So he didn't know anything. Come on. Of course he knew what was going it's very on. very convenient that he somehow yeah, exactly. did not know anything. All of a sudden, I didn't know yeah. a thing. Yeah. So I don't know about you, Adi, but if I was sitting <laughs> on a bench in baseball and there's banging going on when the pitcher's going, uh, yeah. and, I, you know, and I, I know a little more code, I get it. I see but I, but, I don't know <laughs> and, and, and that, I think that kind of speaks to, I mean, you know, I think this is, it's worth getting upset about cheating whenever it is caught. But I think, back to Adi's mm-hmm. kind of original point, this is something that kind of, you know, Basically, I think baseball teams are always kind of pushing the envelope, and now analytics gives them a little bit extra of a dimension to push the envelope on in some ways. And when they step over that line and get caught, they should be punished. But let's not pretend like every other, you know... Team it's, isn't it's, trying to we, do this we can't as far as taking too, measures uh, to counter. Let me just wrap this up by saying I think one other role of analytics 
is that it, you know, in some sense, and now that the data is populated, you could easily imagine it's easier to get caught cheating via analytics. And now there's more people doing analyses mm-hmm. that we'll would say, hey, it. wait a second, yep. there's this anomaly. Someone better explain this to me. Well, this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We have three quarters to go. Uh, stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-hosts and friends this morning, Professor Shane Jensen, Professor Adi Weiner, some combination of us and Cade Master here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM 132. If you want to join the Wharton conversation, it's very easy to do, and given our next guest, you might. Uh, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Whenever Cade's not here, whenever I get to sit in the director's seat, if you'd like, I make the statement, uh, Shane Noddy, that one of my favorite parts of Wharton Moneyball, besides sitting with friends for the week, are that we get to interview really interesting guests. And there's probably nobody in the sports world in the last week given the way the NBA All-Star Game was designed this year that has got more fame now than our next guest. So we're very fortunate to have Nick Elam on the line. Uh, Nick is an educational leadership professor at Ball State University. And for those of you that don't know, he was the one that developed the alternative game ending. And this is the part that's shocking to me while he was a senior in college. So just to remind everybody, and then Nick can talk about his history and how he thought about this. um, You basically take the score at the end of the third quarter, determine some number of points, let's say in this case 24 honoring Kobe Bryant, you add it on to the team's score that's leading, and that's the number of points you need to win the game. So if a team has 133 points and the number's 24, both the first team to 157 wins, which is very different than having a clock that says yeah. you'll play 12 minutes and whoever has the most at the end of that. So we're very fortunate, Nick, to have you join us. Uh, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thanks for that nice introduction. Well, it's shocking to me that you would have come up with an idea that not only seems to me enticing in so many ways, but while you were a senior in college. Could you just talk about the background, your background, and why you came up with what everyone's now calling? This is actually one of those things where I think you actually invented it. And so, you know, we'll call it the Elam ending, and that's what everyone's that's what everyone actually calling, calling it. Yeah. Yeah, please do. Uh, you know, certainly I'm excited for the NBA to use my idea, but I, I wouldn't want them to steal my idea. So the more and more that uh, people use that name, the Elam ending, I appreciate it because uh, there's been a lot of time and, and effort that has gone into this because, yeah, it goes all the way back to 2004. I was a senior at the University of Dayton. I'm a lifelong basketball fan and all my housemates were too. And so we were sitting around watching March Madness, seeing a game like so many we had seen before. It was Duke and Xavier in the Elite Eight and a highly competitive, highly intense game all the way throughout, and then you get to the final stretch, and all the air just goes out of the arena. Uh, you see the, the leading team play very passively and stall. Uh, the trailing team, when they're on defense, they have to foul and hand away free points. When they're on offense, they have to force up ugly shots. And that whole combination of factors makes uh, the, you know, the outcome of the game far too predictable. This slim deficit just seems impossible to overcome. And what you got was a big game and a good game that just faded out with a whimper. And so we're looking around at each other and thinking, you know, it's just so weird how the quality and the style of play just deteriorates so much at the end, how it becomes such a warped and inferior style. And we were tossing around ideas that day for how do you address that? 
And we didn't have any original or viable ideas at the time. At the time, we just tossed around ideas of, well, maybe if you just punish the fouling team more harshly, that that would address the issue. But the problem with that is if you just punish the fouling team more harshly, it, it takes their only option, which is already not a good option to begin with, you make it less appealing without giving them a better alternative. And so that would easily backfire. So we actually tabled that discussion, and it wasn't until 2007 when the light bulb really went on where I thought of this concept of playing most of the game with the clock, playing the last part of the game without a clock to address these issues. And uh, so it took a while for me to convince myself that the idea had merit. And then the really tough part came of trying to convince someone else that the idea had merit, so, with the ability to implement it. Yeah, so Nick, let me ask you just a couple questions. I'm sure any statistician, which the three of us are, would ask you the question, there's two kind of, I'll call it, random variables here. One is how much time to do this for, and the other is how many points to kind of make it so that they have to reach some goal. How do you think, how did you think at that time, like why the fourth quarter? Why not the last five minutes of the fourth quarter? Why, in this case, they chose 24, I understand, to, uh, to honor Kobe Bryant. But how did you think about the amount of time and the number of points in thinking of your system? Sure. So, in 2007, this again became, I didn't know this at the start, but it, it, it became this all-consuming uh, independent spring and summer project and, and what culminated actually in a book. And at the time, I laid out different versions of this format that would many years later become known as the Elam ending. But there, I, I actually preferred a version where you would eliminate the clock for the entire second half. Now, I don't favor that anymore. But I also laid out a version that you would get rid of the clock for the whole fourth quarter. And then another version that I favor now, which is you would just get rid of the clock for the last few minutes of a game. So, uh, you know, you, the settings would vary based on the league or the event. I think, like, for men's college basketball, the numbers kind of work out nicer for, for an explanation. So I'll go with that for men's college basketball. I would actually shut off the clock there at the four-minute mark of the second half. Uh, and for, there's a few reasons for that alone. One is – but that's around the time that you would see a team with a medium-sized lead start to stall and play very passively and manipulate the clock. It's also around the time – well, it's also the last media timeout, so it makes for a nice uh, transition point there. But uh, the really serious flaws like the deliberate fouling and the rushed shots, you really don't see that until the last minute of the game. But you can't wait too long to shut off the clock or you're just going to run into the same problem. So you have to have enough of an untimed cushion. Well, if we're going to take out four minutes of a 40-minute game, we're essentially taking out 10% of the game, and we need to find some way to add 10% of it back in. And if you look at scoring rates in men's college basketball, it's about 70 points per team per game, and 10% of 70 is seven. And so for men's college basketball, I would use a setting where you shut off the clock at the four-minute mark of the second half and use plus seven to determine the target score. But all these things are written in pencil, uh, you know, it just has to be experimented with and given a chance. And, you know, if any of those needs to be adjusted slightly, you could certainly do that. This whole uh, format is meant to evolve. Nick, this is uh, Shane Jensen. Um, I get I, I, I'm kind of curious about the biggest pushback that you've kind of gotten against this proposal. I would I would assume it is kind of just that it, it changes dramatically the essentially the way, you know, the game is played for a portion of time in the game. The counter-argument, I guess, you'd offer for that is that, as you've observed, uh, the end of the game in basketball often is very different than the rest of the game anyway. Is is that the biggest pushback that you faced? Uh, it's not the biggest pushback, the, but to your point, uh, you know, the whole uh, you know, 
spirit behind this idea is not to change basketball. It's to do the opposite, to preserve a more natural style of play through the end of every game. Because, yeah, if you, if you leave everything alone and leave it as is, the game's going to change on its own. And quite frankly, it changes in a way that's inferior to what we see for the bulk of a game. So I think uh, this is a necessary modification that, again, helps to preserve that same style of play. It helps to do the opposite of change the game. The biggest pushback, uh, well, one of the big concerns that has already gone away is that people speculated that, okay, well, if you shut off the clock at the four-minute mark, the trailing teams are just going to start fouling leading up to the four-minute mark. And I was never concerned about that. It's something we have never seen a team do in you know the 145 games of Elamending play in TBT, I was never concerned about it because, you know, in my research, I found that not only does a team, when they have to resort to the fouling strategy under the regular format, only win about 1% of the time, but 80% of the time after they resort to that fouling strategy, they either maintain or widen their deficit. So, uh, you know, again, under the yeah, it's a risk format, strategy. Yeah. Under the regular format, you have to do it. You don't have any other option. You can't just let time run out. But under the Elam ending, you wouldn't want to you know, turn your eight-point deficit into a 12-point deficit going into the final stretch. So there's no reason to start deliberately fouling. So that was one of the main concerns from just like a soundness standpoint uh, before this was ever implemented. But that that concern has quickly gone away, and I don't think we'll ever see it again. So, Nick, this is Adi Weiner. I, I wanted to to uh, ask a, a couple questions. The first one has to do with, the reason why you did this has to do with the fouling and that kind of weird transition that basketball seems to undergo at the very end of the game, but the reason why it was popular, I believe, in the All-Star game, and it was immensely popular, I mean, this was what everybody is talking about, was a very different reason. These All-Stars played hard. <laughs> In other words, this forced them to actually get out there and play defense, which they typically don't do in the All-Star game. And people enjoyed seeing the world's greatest basketball players actually play hard against each other for essentially what most people are saying the first time. Was this, a pro- uh, this aspect of the game, of the Elon ending, am I saying it right? Elam ending. Um, was this a surprise to you? So I, I expected more spirited play, more focused and competitive play, but I underestimated how spirited and competitive and focused it would all be. You know, I've always thought that you know, late in games in high-level basketball, uh, you know, certainly players on offense or defense have the clock in the back of their mind, and that takes away a little bit of their assertiveness or their killer instinct because they're preoccupied with trying to manipulate the clock. And I think if you take away the clock, you take away that electronic third party. Now it's just my team against your team. All every, all the focus is on what's happening on the court, and I think that restores uh, and enhances that assertiveness of players, and I think we really saw that in the All-Star game. We're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Brado, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner. We're talking to Nick Elam. Nick is an Educational Leadership Professor at Ball State University. And, of course, we're talking to him about the Elam ending, which had a big role in this week's All-Star Game. If you want to join the conversation, very easy to do. Please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Nick, my understanding is that the Elam ending has been used in this basketball tournament. Why don't we get – how did – first of all, tell people quickly what the basketball tournament is, and then how did it go from – I'll call it this – basketball tournament to the NBA? Did the NBA approach you? Did they ask your permission? I mean, how did it go? Let's start with the basketball tournament, and then how did it get to the NBA? 
Yeah, so it's a lot to unpack there. So, uh, you know, again, it was 10 years for me to convince the first league or event to give this a try. That was TBT. But then after that, it was only three years before, you know, this was implemented in the All-Star game. So I've always said that the format speaks for itself much better than I can speak on its behalf. And I just knew that once people saw it in action that they would embrace it. But as far as uh, TBT, it is a an annual event that actually started in 2014 uh, that was already growing and thriving, broadcast on ESPN. It's a winner-take-all tournament. And, but it was already on the rise before they decided to implement the Elam ending. They were the ones who gave it the name Elam ending in 2017 on an experimental basis uh, for their preliminary rounds. They liked it so much. It got so much positive feedback from all different stakeholders they went all in with it for 2018, 2019, and I don't think there's any looking back there. Uh, but, you know, again, since 2007, I've been reaching out to people in the basketball world, even at the highest levels, uh, all, you know, all the way through. And most of that has been one-way communication, just me kind of leaving this idea at the doorstep and not knowing how the discussion goes from there. But, um, you know, I, I've had limited interaction over the years with people in the NBA league office, uh, I mean, certainly they're well aware of what this concept is and that, it, that I am the originator of it, uh, you know, 13 years worth of reaching out to people. But it was uh, on January 23rd that members of the league office called me. They thanked me, you know, again, for my passion for the game, my innovative ideas. They uh, told me that in their internal discussions with the Players Association that they see a lot of merit in this concept of an untimed finish to games. They laid out what they plan to do for the all-star game of having an untimed fourth quarter, which again is a version of, of something that I had proposed many years before. And then they told me that they were going to send me uh, to all-star weekend in Chicago as a guest of the NBA. And they, they treated me first class all the way. So uh, that was really exciting. And it's exciting that they're acknowledging me behind the scenes like this. And, and I hope, and I'm confident that uh, they'll find a lasting way to acknowledge me publicly as the originator of this concept. I think you. I think you've got your 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 name is attached to it in a beautiful alliterative style that makes it hard to forget. So I think you. I think your 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 uh, the, the memory there is 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 solid. What I want to ask questions about is is what's going to happen in the future. Um, I mean, what, we talk about NBA in our show regularly, and the the theme that comes up is the the regular season is just a waste. I mean, we enjoy it, but it's too long. The players don't don't really engage, and so the 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 the, the league is talking about having these little you know intermittent tournaments along the way. And what do you? think is going to happen with those things everyone's talking about now using these sort of dramatic reworking of the end of the basketball games to make them much more interesting and this seems to be proof of concept so what what do you think is going to happen during the season anything going to change will will basketball ever actually incorporate it into the way the game is played because it seems to be you know early returns um an improvement sort of monotonically i mean just you know just better yeah, so I cannot speak for the NBA. I would encourage you to reach out to them uh, to get we, we might. <laughs> but uh, but you know, speaking only for myself, I look. I try to look for all the great testing grounds for it because you know, ultimately, I do want to see it implemented at the highest levels of the NBA, the WNBA, NCAA Division One, and the Olympics. But I know that it'll have to grow up to those levels. But to me, one of the ideal testing grounds or venues for this would be exactly what you said that mid-season tournament that the NBA is proposing here in the coming years, because I think you have to find some way to distinguish those games uh, somehow from the regular season. I mean, if, if everything is exactly the same as the regular season, then it's not going to really have 
any kind of a special feel to it. So I think, uh, I to me, that seems like an ideal setting uh, for the Elam ending as part of its growth. So, Nick, let me ask you, smart people like yourself don't just have one idea. They have thousands of ideas. So this is the idea of yours that we've heard about that seems to have gotten some traction. Can you tell us about some ideas? You must have had other ideas. You must even now have other ideas about improving the NBA. What are some of the other ideas that you have that you think could equally be as, let's call it, famous or as effective as the Elam ending? Sure. So I, I have lots of ideas. Now, again, I, I, I hope that I can gain some credibility through this concept that it might lead to some sort of exciting job opportunity or consulting opportunity. So I'm not going to give out too many more ideas, uh, you know, just throwing them out there. Uh, but, you know, some of the ones I think are exciting, one that I've, I've uh, spoken on an MLB network for baseball is a concept called the dynamic strike zone. Uh, I love baseball, but I do think that it has two pressing on-field concerns, the pace and the length of the game and the overabundance of strikeouts and walks. And so what I propose is not only an automated, an automated strike zone, uh, you know, robot umpires, but a dynamic automated strike zone. So this would be where the strike zone would actually start a little bit smaller than what we're used to seeing for each at-bat. After one strike, the strike zone would expand to about the size that we see now. And then after two strikes, the strike zone would, would increase to a size a little bit larger than what we see now. Now what this would do, this would force pitchers to throw the most hittable pitches early in the at-bat, and it would totally get rid of this mindset for hitters that I'm going to go up to the plate and try to work the count or see pitches. They have a tangible incentive to put the ball in play early in the at-bat. Right now, uh, pitches per plate appearance is it's about four, an average of four pitches per plate appearance. If we could just knock that down to three and a half pitches or three pitches, we could knock out dozens of pitches per game without getting rid of any of the action. And, in fact, it would actually increase action. You'd see more balls in play in less time. Spoken like a basketball guy. Spoken like a well, basketball let guy. Let me just say that that had, that had a very visceral reaction. Your proposal for baseball had a very visceral reaction in our studio. Two of us love it. One of us, the traditionalist, does not like it. Yeah, I mean, I, listen, I, I, we've done it and we've actually talked about the The games are too long. I agree. But the real reason why the biggest and most effect-sized thing that you can attack is they take way too long between pitches. So they way, way, way too long between pitches. It's almost double what it used to be. So that has to be attacked. First and cha- what this does, and, and unlike basketball, where you where you don't have that sort of historical memory, it really makes the game uncomparable in, in the past. And, and this is actually when I ask you about the Elon ending in basketball. One of the reasons why people wouldn't imagine doing it in the regular season or in the playoffs is that it we do like having the ability to compare it, and that's why it was so easily brought in for an all-star game and maybe for these interseason tournaments. But I don't see it being brought into the game unless it can really be shown to improve the quality of the game. And, and I don't think this would this would change the game. It would make a tiny dent, we'll, and there are we'll other things We'll definitely have can, Nick yeah. back to talk about baseball. Well, <laughs> yeah, just back to basketball for a second. I kind of want, and I know we only have a couple minutes left, I wanted to kind of ask you about whether you think the impact of this, like, if this got adopted across the board, are you more looking forward to the impact it would have on the NBA game or on the college basketball game? Because I know you brought up college basketball in your kind of canonical example we discussed earlier. Do you think a, do you think it would be, have a greater impact or a more positive impact on, on which level of basketball? Great question. I, I think this would be a significant improvement for the NBA, even as much as I love the NBA. 
I think it would be even even more significant improvement for college basketball, where the fouling strategy is a little bit more prevalent there. And I think this would be even more of a significant improvement at, say, the high school level, where many states, they don't have a shot clock, and there's even more of an incentive to manipulate the game clock there. Uh, So, again, I think it'll take time, but I, I think there is good positive momentum, and I think the growth of this concept will continue throughout the basketball world. So, Nick, maybe just as a last question, um, you even briefly touched upon this. Like, what's your plans, what's your personal plans going forward? Obviously, uh, we fully support, you know, we're looking for people that are analytic thinkers to think about changing the game. What are your plans over the next year or two? I mean, I assume you're looking for opportunities. Yeah, so, and, you know, I'm always open to opportunities. It has to be a pretty exciting opportunity because life's pretty good for me right now. Uh, you know, a lot of this work, you know, again, going back for years, you know, I was kind of doing on paper or using my trusty uh, TI, you know, calculator, you know, helping helping me out with some of this. So, uh, you know, maybe a $1 billion endorsement deal with Texas Instruments would be pretty cool, something like that, or, uh, you know, any kind of, uh, uh, like I mentioned, consulting opportunity, public speaking opportunity. You just never know what kind of an indirect benefit might come from being the originator of this idea. Well, let me first thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Let me also thank you from all of us NBA fans about making the All-Star game more interesting. Let me also thank you for, I love the thought of making, it's not changing the play, it's keeping the play the same throughout the entire game. I think it's a, it's a very yes, clever yeah. idea. I love the idea with experimenting with different lengths of time and different uh, number of points you have to get to. And um, I think you, this has the potential to really change fundamentally uh, the ends of game. So I want to thank you for that, and thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. All right, thanks so much. So we were we've been talking to Nick Elam. Uh, Nick's an educational leadership professor at Ball State University. And for those of you that weren't following, um, the actual NBA All Star Game actually changed formats this year to a not fixed time format, but number of points format. And my guess is to get to twenty four points, it would take less time. So not only is there less bad fouling, but it actually is going to shorten the game. So, great interviews. This has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. There are some more great interviews and more great discussion coming up. Please stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner, some combination of us and Cade Massier every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. here on Sirius XM 132. And of course, we're a call-in show. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Well, guys, our next interview is certainly no exception to our rule of a former athlete who's now transitioned to a role in both analytics and broadcasting, someone who can really give us an inside look at the game and the way that analytics is now uh, having a role in the NFL and how it has changed over the last few years. We're honored to have Solomon Wilcox on the line. Solomon is a former NFL defensive back, actually someone I know well, certainly from we're of similar age, so someone from my era of football. He's currently a host and an analyst with Pro Football Focus, obviously some a group of people we know and company we know well, and Sky Sports UK. He previously worked for ESPN and CBS. Solomon, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. 
Eric, Shane, Arnie, uh, great to be on with you this morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. It's great to talk to you. So let's just start with the uh, beginning. Let's start to go back to the olden days when you and I were, when you were playing and I was watching you play. Can you tell us about the role that analytics had, you know, back in the day? So 25 years ago or so, how big a role was analytics and what did people even consider analytics back then? Yeah, I think we had a different name for it. Um, you know, I don't know that it was called analytics. We just kind of dealt with, you know, statistics and situational football. Um, and it wasn't really heavy. I remember as a player, I remember in college, I remember watching tape, and I remember preparing um, and getting ready to do games. And we basically would just go through the situations in terms of red zone, um, goal line, short yardage, third down plays. And then we began to move in um, to do a deeper dive in terms of trying to find out exactly what teams wanted to do, what was the level of probabilities um, based on personnel grouping and all those situations that I named. Once you get into the NFL, that's where the game of football, we call it pro football, believe me, it's a professional league. You spend more time maybe in the classroom and in the film room learning these situations, these probabilities based on all the anomalies, based on all the situations, to try to determine the tendencies of what you could expect from your opponent. That's really what data analytics is all about. So Solomon, this has this brings the natural question to my mind. I mean I'm just I'm about to compliment you, but compliment all the NFL players. Doesn't that require a fairly strong amount of both IQ memory, the ability to recall it in real time, to translate it to actually on the field? I mean, forget, I mean, this has to require an immense amount of ability, training, mental acuity. There's no doubt. I mean, even if you go back to, let's just say the mid-40s, when Paul Brown started the Cleveland Browns, we all know that Paul Brown's one of the fathers of football that instituted a lot of different innovations. Part of what he instituted was what? The classroom film study, um, and he started really teaching his players how to understand the game from the neck up in a very cerebral approach to the game, and that's why his teams won um, a high volume of games. He, he was dominant um, for about a 10-year run through the 40s and early 50s in terms of how much of an advantage his team had, and that's right. He was looking for players who, who were smart, who could not only learn information, but can retain the information and take it out on the field with them and be able to make plays. I've always said that, particularly in football, uh, that the players who make a lot of plays, they tend to know something that the other guys don't. You know, Rod Woodson's a very good friend of mine. I think he ranks now second all-time as the interceptor with 71 career interceptions, played 17 seasons in the NFL. And I say, you knew – more about what was going on offensively than maybe some of the other defensive backs because you don't luck your way into 71 career interceptions, okay? That means he had to employ some study, had to carry it out on the field, had great anticipation, but then he wasn't afraid to pull the trigger based on the information he had based on those situations um, from the opponent. And that's what you're talking about. Players have to have that mental acuity, but then you have to have the gumption, the gall, to put it into work and trust in it in a moment's notice real time to turn it into productive action. 
So this is Adi Weiner. I wanted to ask you a question about actually some of the words you just used, which is a player doesn't luck their way into 71 interceptions. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit because in baseball, analytics or statistics, you're right, we used to call it statistics and now we call it analytics, um, has been around a long time. And one of the reasons why I think it has been is that baseball executive players, everyone around it, understands that there's a big role of chance. When you hit a ball, it may go to the player or go to the side, and and when that's all the difference. But one of the things I think is very different about football is that 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 the words aren't used. Chance isn't used by the coaches and the players. They think of it as when a, when when you're fourth and one and you line up and you don't get the, the 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 fourth down, the successful first down. It's because you didn't execute or you ran the wrong play. You don't. They don't typically think about it in terms of probability, and that's been a big ob- obstacle to actually making football understand and use analytics and use some of those words I'm hearing from you. We just have to be better and smarter and then we'll be more successful. How do you think the, the football has really managed to grasp the idea that maybe there's a role for chance and that that needs to be incorporated in decision-making? Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, uh, like chance, we would say, okay, the bounce of the ball. I think what you find from coaches like Bill Belichick, some of the really smart, bright, innovative coaches, even an Andy Reid, what they're trying to do is take chance out of it. We know that there are going to be some of these anomalies, things that are what out of our control that could occur. But for the things that are well within our control, let's make sure that we understand what those are. Let's make sure that we dial in and lock in on every single situation. The one thing that lends itself to analytics for football, maybe more so than anything else, there's a stop in the action before every single play. So we really do have time to lock in first and 10 from the plus 40-yard line with 11 personnel on the field. Those data points, each bit of information, helps us to surmise a certain level of probability of what we could expect on the very next play. Time left on the clock also factors in what we can expect, okay? And that's why football, I think, for for analytics, I think football is – sort of like the sweet spot because you can actually take the time to understand, okay, what is the current situation? And as you get less time on the clock and get deeper into the game, each moment becomes even that much more critical. Okay? And that's why you see teams going for it more on fourth day. Because that's a, that's a situation where it's much more critical. Let's take advantage of it. We don't necessarily have to punt. In fact, why would we give the ball back to the other team when we stand a level of probability, particularly if we're going forth from the plus 30-yard line, um, the probability that we'll convert and be able to maintain possession of the ball, uh, the chances of us keeping the ball actually go up in that situation. So football lends itself to using this science to help us win games. It's really about locking in on every critical moment, every critical situation based on down, distance, personality, uh, or I should say personnel, excuse me, and time left on the clock. Solomon, I, this is Shane Jensen. I've got a question mostly about, I think, the culture of football, I guess. Given that there's so that football lends itself so well to kind of an analysis in this way and in a kind of an intellectual approach to the game, and given the success, historical success of some franchises like Paul Brown and the Patriots more recently— how is it that there's still such a disparity among organizations in how much analytics is used? Since it clearly seems to give teams an edge, how have teams not sort of universally adopted it? Is it just kind of a cultural thing? Yeah, I, I think it is a cultural thing. You know, you've got um, some teams 
who have just a more enlightened approach. So what we have is we have this thing called a league, the NFL, okay? We got 32 different clubs. Each one of those clubs have their own unique culture. (laughs) They have their own unique personality. That's why some do well, some do not. Some are locked in mediocrity. Some are locked at at the bottom end of the spectrum. Some operate at the front end, at the top end. Those who operate at the top end, you're going to find that they have a much more enlightened view of the game, willing to embrace new things, take in new information, and translate it into productive activity. That's what you're going to find. That's like any other business, right? Those who are more innovative, what we call speed to market, okay, those are the ones who are going to be more productive. They're going to have higher earnings. And those who are a little bit slow and wait for everybody else to do it before they get on board, they're going to be laggards in the market. And that's where we're at. Um, and, and I don't know. I mean, you can't. it's hard to say, well, this is why this team struggles without really going into the building and knowing exactly what they have and how they do things. But I think we can all look from afar and say, okay, here are the ones that are cutting edge, that are more innovative, that are willing to take in more information like the Baltimore Ravens, for instance, in terms of what they did during the 2019 season and how they leveraged, okay, the use of data analytics. Um, They were, I think, converting, what, roughly about 75% of their fourth down opportunities, which means they led the league in scoring. Mm -hmm. They had more opportunities, even though they ran the football the majority of the time. They scored points as if they were the greatest show on turf, as if they were a passing team. We've never before seen a team that were primarily a running offense score the way we've seen the Baltimore Ravens score. That's because they leveraged other elements of data analytics to be able to convert on fourth down, get more opportunities, and score more points. Solomon, let me ask you a question about, uh, I'll call it the mecca of data analytics or the mecca of totally worthless data, something that's coming up in the NFL, which is the NFL Combine. As my co-hosts here know, um, I will be watching every single minute of the NFL Combine. I don't know why I love watching the Combine. I do. I love watching the cone drills. I certainly like watching the 40-yard dash. Could you talk to us both as a former player, but as someone that does analysis, someone that's involved with pro football focus, when you were going to the Combine, what did you think about it? And what do you think, is it at all predictive in your mind of how someone's actually going to perform on the field? Very good question. I think it's, you know, first of all, I think this varies based on what position you play. So if I say it, it, does, it tells us absolutely nothing, I don't think that would be true for every position. But it might be true for maybe some positions. Like, I don't think it tells you a whole lot about offensive linemen and whether or not they can protect or if they can drive people off the ball in the run game, work their way to the second level. I I don't think it tells you a whole lot. Um, I think for defensive backs, for instance, I think movement, cutting, backpedaling, getting a time on defensive back there because you're doing a lot of reactionary stuff in a football game as a defensive back. And so to take you to the combine, to have you uh, a coach in front of you, moving you, shifting you, turn and run, backpedal, plant, and drive on certain angles, catch the football, we're going to be able to see if you could drop your hips and move and cut, come out of a break in a reactionary way that allow you to stay with receivers. I think 40 time matters for, um, say, receivers and defensive backs. I think even for receivers running their routes, even if they're running on air, 
and then being able to track a ball, close on the ball, high point it when it's coming down. I think we can see his athleticism, hand-eye coordination, quickness at the top of the route to come out and separate, and all those things. Quarterbacks, when it comes to throwing, they're not throwing to familiar targets. But you could see, I think when uh, Patrick Mahomes went to the Combine, 2016-2017, um, they clocked him at the fastest um, time in terms of the ball speed. It was one of the fastest ever. Now, does that talk about his accuracy? Absolutely not. But you could see this guy, this kid's arm special. It's Brett Favre-like. At that point, people began to schedule more visits to his campus. I think he had 18 private workout sessions. I think um, almost 30 of the 32 teams ended up attending his pro day camp. In other words, they wanted to see more. They saw enough that says, whoa, we better take a better look at this kid. So you can see how it may vary by position in terms of what you're getting out of that combine experience. I know when I went there back in 1987, that was a long time ago, uh, I looked at it as an opportunity to go there and compete. Coming out of the University of Colorado, wasn't highly rated, but I knew all eyes would uh, be on me and I would have a chance to catch uh, the eye at least of one team. And I went out as a defensive back. I wanted to move well, run well, and show that I was here in, in meeting business. And I remember Dick Lippo talking to me after the first rookie minicamp. They don't worry about where you're drafted. We know you can play. We love the way you come out and compete and ready to practice. You're going to have every chance to make this team. So I, I could tell you this for every player there, it's not time wasted, but in no way, shape, or form does it mean that you're going to be a star in the NFL. It's just the beginning. It's the tip of the iceberg to be able to show teams what you're capable of. Solomon, uh, we're here talking to Solomon Wilcox. Solomon is a former NFL defensive back, who's currently a host and analyst with Pro Football Focus and Sky Sports UK. If you want to join us and join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So, Solomon, let me ask you. Um, this relates somewhat to Adi's question about randomness. Why do you think then there's such? I'll call it still an imprecise science. My understanding is you were drafted in the eighth round. My guess is 215th pick. There were probably lots of players picked before you, maybe in fact more than 80% of them who maybe never even really made an NFL roster, certainly didn't play for multiple years, certainly didn't get the notoriety that you did. Why was Patrick Mahomes, I think, drafted 14th by the Kansas City Chiefs, and I think they traded up to get him? Why is there not more precision? And do you think analytics will help this problem because now you can measure things, like as you mentioned for Mahomes, how fast he throws the ball, how fast he runs, release time. Do you think analytics will help teams draft people more precisely? I think what it should do, it should always be seen as a tool that helps you to see, maybe get a a better picture of who the athlete is and how that athlete might perform, and more importantly, and how he might fit into what you do, into what your system is. Um, I don't think every player is for every team. For instance, Joe Montana was a quick processor, quick to get the ball out, um, go through his progressions very rapidly. If you would have maybe put him in an Air Coriel system where it was hold the ball, throw the ball down the field, seven-step drop stuff, maybe Joe Montana turns out different. He was a third uh, round selection for the 49ers, but in a Bill Walsh offense, he was a perfect fit. 
quick in his progress to go from one, two, three, four, five. He can he knew to eliminate one and two based on defense, go straight to number three, work three, four, and five on that specific play. He was a better fit for that offense. And I think that's what coaches have to be able to use the data to understand why this player is a good player. Probably not best for us given what we do. But this player, maybe not as talented as the other guy, but he's a better fit for us. So let's go ahead and take him. That's where I think you got to understand how data analytics work. And I think right now coaches have to be able to understand that we that you need to take players based on what you do. I could tell you, if you take a player like Chris Carr, Hall of Fame player, he goes to the Eagles, catching maybe 30 to 40, maybe 50 balls a game, goes to the Minnesota Vikings. Once they moved him into the slot, he's catching 90 to 100 balls a season. Excuse me. So he exploded because there was a the system was a better fit. Same player, same talent, same skill set, but placed in a different system. Now that talent is able to flourish at a whole nother level. So let me ask you about some of the work. We actually know a number of the people at Pro Football Focus, including this is right, Chris Collinsworth company, right? Mm-hmm. So could you tell us um, how you got involved with Pro Football Focus and how it's led to, you could argue, both how you got involved with them and how it's affected everything you do, both the broadcasting and work you do with the NFL? Well, yeah, I got involved with them because I got a call from a former teammate of mine by the name of Chris Collinsworth, who who is he's the owner of the company pro football focus as you well know he's one of the best broadcasters um in the national football league was using the product as an analyst and you know became so interested he ended up buying the company from a group of guys over in great britain led by neil hornsby who's now the ceo of, of pro football focus or PFL. Yep, we've had a, we've and had so, both Chris and you. We've had uh, everybody that works yeah. with you there. We've had them on this show. <laughs> that we, in fact, we have like the hotline between Morton Moneyball and Pro Football yeah. Focus. That's right. It's, I got a call from Chris. It says, "Hey, Neil, we'd like to talk to you. We'd love to have you come in. We're going to be doing more broadcasting. We got to get the word out about what we're doing here." And and, and Chris and I just kind of shared this vision along with Neil that. If we can get more broadcasters understanding how this would help them be better as analysts, um, we've already gotten the teams on board. All 32 teams do work with us and, and uh, get our information. Over 71 um, college teams and, and NCAA college football use our, our data information to prepare and help them get ready for games. And so that's how I end up coming on board is helping to spread the message, helping to create content where I write articles on our website using the data analytics to help evaluate players in the draft and in free agency and how teams are built, put together, and what salary cap really means. As you guys have heard, no team has won a Super Bowl where the quarterback is taking more than 15% of the annual salary cap because you've got to be able to build a team around it. So a lot of this data analytics and the work that we do here is highly predictive in terms of what you could expect from players, what you could expect from teams, and how they're built and constructed. So um, I'm a curious soul. I've worked in, in broadcasting for over 25 years. I've been around the game of football for roughly 40 years. And so um, as Malcolm Gladwell would say, I got my 10,000 hours in, and now I'm, I'm trying to accumulate hours on the data analytics side um, so that I can help this company grow and help people to share and enjoy um, what 
data analytics really do provide for us for those of us who are curious about the game of football. Solomon has I assume a lot of your work with Pro Football Focus is on kind of the defensive side and specifically evaluating defensive backs. What do you sort of see as the kind of biggest challenges out there as far as evaluating you know the quality of different defensive backs? And how can kind of like this new generation of of of, of data kind of aid those challenge or aid, help you overcome those challenges? Yeah, and, and that's a good question. You know, as a defensive back, what I had to study was quarterbacks, receivers. I had to study running backs because I had to come up and tackle them. If you got to tackle a Bo Jackson one week and the next week you got to tackle Barry Sanders, you better lock in. Because <laughs> you could you could get embarrassed by both, right, in different ways. <laughs> One guy make you look silly by running around you. The other guy make you look silly by running through you. So we so we always had to study the offensive side of the ball. But you're right. I think when you look at defensive backs, what the real um, the real interesting thing is is that coverage in and of itself can be highly unstable. In other words, a coverage corner from week to week. He could be great one week in covering a receiver, and then the next week he could be very average. Now, some of this may be based on who is he covering. One week, if you're covering some average receiver, and the next week it's Julio Jones, well, your ability to perform at a high level as a coverage corner sometimes is predicated on who you're covering, right? If you're going up against a Jerry Rice caliber receiver every single week, Maybe you, your grade or your performance wouldn't look nearly as good. So we also have to factor in some of that as well when you're going up against high-caliber receivers versus just average receivers or below-average receivers. For instance, um, Richard Sherman was our highest-graded cornerback during the 2019 season, played phenomenally well. In the Super Bowl, against Sammy Watkins, maybe a mid-level caliber receiver, former first-round pick for sure, he, uh, Sammy Watkins is able to get a big play against the best and highest-graded corner of the season, which helped the Chiefs win the game. You wouldn't expect Richard Sherman to give up that play. So that's what I mean when I say that coverage can be highly unstable. It could be inconsistent. And that's something that we always have to be careful of. The 49ers went into the Super Bowl with the third-best pass rush of any defense during the 2019 season. Well, they had the second-best coverage team behind the New England Patriots. It still wasn't enough to win the game against a quarterback and his receiving crew. It was good enough for three-and-a-half quarters. I got to tell you, they were putting the pressure on Patrick Mahomes. They were putting the clamps on the receivers who weren't making plays. They forced Mahomes into throwing interceptions. But for the last eight minutes of the fourth quarter – it all deteriorated, didn't it? It didn't hold up. And so we had to go back and take a look at that and say, okay, where did coverage break down or did pass rush break down? Because both broke down for the 49ers, and it was just enough um, for them to lose that game. I, I, I found it very interesting when we went back and looked at it. Wait, did they break down or did Mahomes beat them? What would you – What would your? They broke – no, they broke They broke down. down. They, 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 well, the that's not the narrative rush, we're hearing. The pass rush was fatigued. <laughs> Um, and the coverage broke down. Remember, third and 15, one corner, Emmanuel Mosley, he didn't drop back in his own. He allowed him to complete, he allowed him to complete it. He allowed, he, I mean, he was just out of position. So Mahomes was like, whoa, there was a guy wide open. Third and 15, they convert to Tyreek Hill. 
of the 75 snaps that the 49ers played in that game defensively on defense, 29 of their snaps were in the fourth quarter. So 38%, that's roughly 40% of their snaps occurred in the fourth quarter. So, yeah, the pass rush grew tired. Nick Bosa was less effective because now he's fatigued. Remember Vince Lombardi said fatigue makes cowards of us all? (laughs) (laughs) So this defense that had performed phenomenally well when the offense didn't make enough plays to help them get off the field and they didn't make plays on third down, they wore down, they became fatigued, and they gave up just enough plays to allow Mahomes to score on three consecutive possessions in the fourth quarter and, and walk off with the Vince Lombardi trophy. So it's a good place for us to jump off and talk about the future. So let me ask you about the future in your mind of analytics in a few areas. Let's start with broadcasting, something that, as you said, you've been spending, you spent the last 25 years on, and we hope another 25 years on. How do you see the role of analytics changing broadcasting and the way we as the fans watch games in the future? I think the fans are learning about data analytics. They're learning how to interpret the data, and they're becoming a more educated fan base, much more educated than, say, 10 years ago, 20 years, certainly 30 years ago. And so the analysts are going to have to step their game up. Um, As a broadcaster, you cannot tell people consistently something that they already know and think that you're going to maintain that position. You've got to be able to tell an, an audience that's ravenous for information, that's really knowledgeable, particularly about their team. They may not be knowledgeable about all 32 teams, but they're intimately knowledgeable about their team. And when you go into an NFL city, you've got to know more about their team than they do. And, and the data um, is where we can do that. That's where we can go in and say, did you know that your team performs very well for the first three quarters of the game? And then in the final quarter, not only do they perform poorly, but this year is exactly where they perform poorly. This, this area, specific area, is where the team tends to let down each and every week. And we can reveal that and show that to them. And uh, that, I think fans really enjoy that. They enjoy when they become more enlightened about their team and have greater understanding for either why their team is successful or maybe even why they fail. So I think that's where we are in the business of entertainment. When you're calling a game as an analyst um, for a television network, and you've got to do, be able to do one or two things. You've got to be able to um, inform or entertain. And if you're doing both, then you're operating at a very high level. But you have to be able to inform the audience and it'd be great if you could entertain them also. How about what do you think is the next great innovation of analytics for, let's call it, on-the-field play? Obviously, we've seen changes in fourth downs, people going for it a lot more. We've seen teams go for two a lot more. Uh, We've seen, obviously, the passing game playing a much more important role than the rushing game. What do you see as the next great frontier to which analytics may change the play on the field? I think all those things you just mentioned are going to become more prevalent. I think I think uh, teams are going to be going for it more. Um, I do believe that um, we've seen the passing game sort of um, evolve to a higher level. I think the run game, uh, as we saw this year, for instance, um, it's sort of the cyclical, right? It comes back around. Do you know that the top four passing teams in 2019 during the regular season, none of them made the playoffs. The top four rushing teams, all of them made the playoffs. So this, this thing is, is cyclical. It comes back around. 
Now when we got into the postseason, guess what? Those running teams didn't fare so well. The Baltimore Ravens lost in the first round. The Tennessee Titans, who who really was fueled by their rushing attack, they faltered in the AFC Championship game. The Kansas City Chiefs were the fifth-best passing offense. They ended up walking off with the Vince Lombardi trophy, and they didn't even have a dominant run game. They had just enough to maybe, you know, force you to put an extra guy in the box, but they were they were going to slice and dice you with the passing game. So at the end of the day, the data shows that the passing game is where it is, and I think that's where it is going to stay. I think also I think the more innovative thing is what we're saying is how teams are going to allocate their salary cap. Who do you pay? Who do you not pay? I think we're finding out that the running backs are going to be getting less money, guys. Quarterbacks are going to be getting the lion's share. Of the top ten producing running backs in 2019, seven of the ten were on their rookie contracts. Only three were on a second-year deal or their second contract. That was Ezekiel Elliott, Carlos Hyde, and Mark Ingram, the running back for the Baltimore Ravens. All the other ones who were top producing, in other words, they had the best production, they were on their rookie deal. So what does that tell an owner and general manager? Once they get into the second uh, the second big contract, they're not going to be the top producing running backs. It's always the younger guys, and the younger guys are always working on that rookie deal, and you're going to find that teams are very reluctant to pay a Derrick Henry um, um, for that second contract. But they're going to be giving the Lions here that money to the quarterback, and then how are you going to build a team around them? I think that's really where this is going in terms of how teams are constructed and how the money is allocated. Just just one follow-up to that. You don't worry that maybe it has to do with the fact that when you have a rookie running back, you're not spending on a running back, so you're spending on the things that help the running back get good? I think that's part of it. There's no doubt. And I just think that also we all know that as running backs get older, they become less productive. Mm. Most of them, their most productive years are going to come during those first five seasons. And so if the rookie, uh, the way that the CBA is put together, those rookie contracts are going to take running backs through what? The first four to five years in this league, depending on what round you were drafted. So uh, that's where I think they're going to look at that, and they see that the production is dropping off so drastically after five years, they're going to be reluctant to give them that second contract as they're heading into that fifth year. Well, Solomon, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. We'll be talking to Solomon Wilcox, former NFL defensive back, currently a host and analyst with Pro Football Focus and Sky Sports UK. Uh, we'd love to have you back after the NFL draft to hear what you think about the various players. And, of course, we didn't even get to talk to you about the XFL, which we'd love to get your opinion on, but we'll have to be next time. So thank you again for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. All the best. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate Thank you. It. So this has been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. We still have some things that caught our eye in sports. We're probably going to do some over-unders. Stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here this morning with Professor Shane Jensen and Professor Zadi Weiner. Some combination of us and Cade Master here every Wednesday morning live on Sirius XM 132. You can join the conversation at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And we've just gotten done with two wonderful interviews, one with Nick Elam, who kind of invented the new structure, if you'd like, that was used in the NBA All-Star Game, and Solomon Wilcox, who was both telling us 
us about the role of analytics, both as a former player, as an analyst, and also what they're doing at Pro Football Focus. So, guy, guys, um, now that we've talked about the NFL, there is this new league that's going on now, the XFL. We've been talking about it for a few weeks. One of the things we spent a lot of time on, Adi, I know uh, you and uh, Zach Drapkin, our assistant uh, producer and analyst, has done some work on this. We've also had this discussion on the one of the big innovations there, which was after a touchdown, you cannot kick an extra point. That it, There is none of that in the XFL. You have three choices. You can go for one point from the two-yard line, which is similar to the NFL, except you get two points from it. You get two points on the five-yard line or three points from the 10-yard line. So what do we now observe in terms of both which ones people are doing, the success rate, and kind of I know it's small samples, but advice we give to teams. Okay, so it's actually the, the XFL version of the Elam ending. It's something yeah. a little bit different and yeah. innovative. So what? Okay, so what are so what are people doing? They're all going from it predominantly from two, uh, which is a, a one point. It's almost the equivalent of the extra point. Simply, it seems like it's a conventional carryover, but but it's a terrible mistake. So um, there was a they're a going few, for one. They're going the for two. one yeah. from the two, and 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 they're using the idea that maybe it's it's the highest probability, uh, which it is. But it's not justified by the doubling of the points you get from going for five. Yeah. So, by the way, here's the data. Let me just give you the data um, from the two yard line. They're six of twenty three, so roughly twenty five percent, a little less. From the five yard line, they're four of fourteen, which is point three oh eight, which is a little over thirty percent. So it's There's a red high, fluctuation. I, but, but, I know, yeah. Sam, but. It's at least you, there's no data assist. It's a lower conversion right, rate, right. and it's double the number, double of, the points. number of points. Yeah. And then it's zero for one from the ten. From the 10. But I they, mean, they that's haven't fine. gotten to that yet. So what what Zach did, which is actually a very creative solution, which is he looked at ten years worth of NFL data and he looked at all plays within ten yards of the end zone on third or fourth down, yeah. meaning that they're basically trying to get in and use that to build a, a model, a complete model that's a function of the yardage, and then you can just plug in the values one, uh, two yard. Five yard and ten yard, and that gives you actually a better fit than just trying to look at all plays from the two, the five, and the ten, which leaves you with very small counts. So yeah. he borrows strengths from all the data to get a, a good, accurate. So that estimate. was going to be my question yeah. to you: is that why do you have to build a model? Don't aren't there just enough plays at every yard line that you can just be in a straight empiricist? Not actually enough, and, yeah. the, and, the, and the probabilities are small. And even with all the data that we get and the borrowing of the strength, there's still considerable uncertainty. And so actually the, one of the points is, well, I'll get you the, the estimates. The estimates say don't ever touch the two-yard. The, the expected points is around 0.4-ish, 0.4, so it's not enough, 0.47 So just so. to be clear for, for our listeners, if on the x-axis you had the number of yards to go, and on the y-axis you had the probability of success, right. what you're describing is a curve that probably – Goes down goes steeply down to begin with, but then it flattens, flattens out, out, which right. means, you know, matter of fact, this is a great rule for people since we're a business show, too. Always look for flat parts of curves. In my view in, of the marketing world, when price elasticity is flat, that's saying you can raise the price and people don't care. Or you can give people a worse level of product and they perceive they the quality care. the yeah. same. Yep. And so you're talking about a yep. flat point of a, a probability flat. curve and saying, yeah, but the problem is one's worth two and the other's worth one. Exactly, and that's double the value. So the numbers that we come up with are about 0.47 is the expected points. And this is NFL. Uh, using, using NFL, using NFL, NFL, NFL success, success rate. 0.47 for which one? 
one. For the two. Yeah. Uh, that's expected points, yeah. and assuming a 47% yeah. success yeah. rate. And then from the five, the success rate drops, but not, it's overwhelmingly, it's still over 30%, and so it's way better so to do from you're point point six, six, seven seven. or so. Yeah. And, then, and then where it gets uncertain is what happens at the 10, because now we have, the estimate says it's a little bit less expected value from the 10, but the uncertainties really start to So what's the high. implication of possibly, what, no, just this is a great point for our listeners. Why is it good sometimes to take a lower mean expected payout, but one with higher variance? Right. So, so if you assume that the, the ten yard line is lower mean, which we're not even sure it is, but let's assume it's because essentially, if you're the underdog, you want to take chances. Yeah. So, you, so this is actually very much the Elam ending. You in, in basketball, you don't you you foul because you you need to take a negative expected value in order to have the variance to, to catch up and beat a, an opponent uh, and catch up to an opponent who's beating you or a better opponent. So the, the the pithy advice that Zach put at the end of his articles, which I think was in Football Outsiders, yep. was simply if you're the weaker team, you should probably always doing it from the 10. And every team should be avoiding yeah. the 2, which is in fact Zach, exactly the opposite of what they're doing right now, and almost always go for it from the 5. No, I know that Zach and you as well, Adi, had some thoughts about, but you're using NFL data. Yes. So what's, could you talk to our listeners about, you know, we even talked about counterfactuals. It's not exactly right. the same thing, but we're using the NFL as if that would you know, relate to the XFL, right, so, why might it not? Right, so the idea is that they're, the NFL is better, but they're better on defense and they're better on offense, so I'm almost in actual balance. So whatever we're estimating from the NFL is a decent um, carryover. I think anyone who's watched the games, including myself, is getting the feeling that the defense is better than the offense. And they're, they're or that, the, or that, that the main way in which the kind of the XFL differs substantially from the NFL so far seems to be in the kind of offensive line yep. and quarterbacking play. And if you look at it, the numbers, I which mean... Which would lower the... Which would lower kind of potentially all these probabilities, like all the kind of true XFL probabilities at this at the two yard line, five yard line is probably systematically lower than so let's just mm-hmm. be clear. in the NFL. If all this did was lower the entire curve, yeah. there'd be no difference because yeah, right. it wouldn't You'd change. Wanna... They wouldn't change the number. It wouldn't change the expect. It would change the expected number of points, but in a uniform way. Between... It would have to change it on the same percentage basis, and if, and and that's not and that no, would no, do no. that. But it, I think it just drops it by a constant, yeah. not not by a percent. In which case, it does have it. So what we're seeing is is uh, that so I I think actually the numbers are the gap. It's flatter than it would be correct. between two and five, and so I think it's even more prominent. You should be doing five because two is so unsuccessful. Yeah. What was the numbers you quoted? How many were they? Four of fourteen. Four of fourteen. Uh, no, 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 from the two, from six of twenty-three. Six yeah. of twenty-three, and and they just seem to be equally bad at two-yard line as they are at the five. And the payoff is twice. So if any lesson going forward, and yeah. we, we had the president of the XFL, uh, DC Defenders, down here. Uh, hello, people. Avoid the two. Go for the five. Let that be the message. Yeah. And so, yeah. What's also interesting is again, this will be a great time series to track. Not so much just the success rate but do teams who have looked at this data like next week if we're still here and there's you know more than 50 percent more twos than fives going for it something's wrong yeah Right, there's yep. uh, that'll be very interesting. So it'll be interesting to track how these relative proportions, both the number of att- the proportion of attempts from each of these, as well as the success rates, kind of evolves over the course of the season. Yeah, I'm more. I have to admit, from a statistician's perspective, I'm more interested in the attempts yeah. than the success rate. Yeah. I'm just interested to see if teams seem to be looking at the data at all, right. and at what point. Look, we don't have proof, but we have some evidence right now that. Five, going from the five is better than going from the two from an expected value perspective. There's yeah. certainly no evidence to the contrary, and we'll, we'll just see how long it takes 
to, for that to happen. So, guys, it was actually another sporting event that happened this week, and something I've never seen in all the years I've been watching golf. And I've been watching golf for a long, long, long time. So, Tiger Woods made the cut this week at the Riviera, last week at the Riviera. That's the good news. Let me see the bad news. Um, he ended up last of all the players that made the cut. I think his rounds were something like 69, 73, 76, 77. Now, what's interesting about that is that people are starting to wonder if his putting, which, by the way, was last in the field, is starting to decline. So if you look at an age curve for putting, it's been known that players in their mid-40s, actually, they actually put this up on the broadcast, which I give them credit for. They put up age on the x-axis and strokes gained putting and there's a massive decrease in strokes gained putting when someone hits their mid-40s now tiger woods is now 44 okay he was even you say well wait the guy won the masters the guy won the players championship a year ago the guy won the zozo championship he's won three out of the 15 or 16 tournaments he's played he was still a hundredth in putting so what's interesting is and this gets to an interesting fact the reason he won those, he was number one closest to the pin. And you remember, we had a golf analytics guy saying, if you're two feet closer to the pin, it could make a guy who's the hundredth putter seem like he's a top ten putter in the world. So my question for you is that, do we think that, you know, in some sense, now that he's in his mid-40s, he better even be better on his iron game because he's not going to win it in putting. He's well, just not. The first reaction I have to this kind of fall off the cliff kind of graphic that you're describing is how many golfers are there still playing in their like mid 40s? Now there's a huge number. Okay. I mean, right now, I mean, if we look over a 20 year period, I would say, let's say, in every given golf tournament, there's 120 players essentially in the major tur- not the majors, but the large tournaments that make the cut. I'd say there's probably. 10 of them that are in their mid-40s and above. So do you think we have enough sample size that we actually kind of buy into this fall-off-the-cliff? Because there's I, a lot of selection bias yeah, in play I, here, I, right? Let me also well, follow I, up the and, selection bias is a real I, I, issue. Let me ask you a question. Before we jump from a correlation or observation to a cause right. age... What's the mechanism? Yeah, what's the underlying? I, mean, I understand like, why strength do we get disproportionately yeah, w- w- bad at pitching. You'd argue, specifically? you'd argue that putting that you would argue oh, that that yeah. putting. If I, I'm not a golf expert, I'd like to state that right up front, yeah. and I don't watch it like you do. But if I were to estimate which which estimate which portion of a golf game is the is the least susceptible to aging, it would be the part that's the least physical. And am I wrong about this? What yeah, am I, I missing? Mean, I, I've, been equal, I've been equally bad at all aspects of the game my whole life, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I'm a very yeah, yeah. very poor study for this, but I would I would I would agree that, you know, I kind of feel like probably you know, at least if you asked me without having any knowing anything about the data or anything like that, what aspect of the game would be the least sensitive to aging? It would probably be the most. Yeah, I would like argue putting. So, what, what's anyone have any thoughts? Um, should we bring a golf expert on? We to- should, but it's not. Let me just say it's it's counter to the data. Uh, the data is that you know it, possibly it's because of what people train for, which is you know guys when they get older are more worried about can I hit the ball long enough mm-hmm. so that I have a short enough iron into the green. Like if I'm hitting a set, if you're hitting a seven iron into the green and I'm hitting a four iron into the green. That's well. It's not like, for example, we have guys in the Champions Tour. You know, that's the older over fifty tour. Those guys can come out and play on the PGA Tour. The problem is they're going to have four irons into greens, where the pro, the active under fifty pros are going to have seven irons. You just in a four round tournament, 
four irons aren't beating seven irons, and that's why distance is so it matters so much. People talk about putting. What they talk about is fine motor skills. Fine motor <laughs> skills decay over time, yes. and putting has a huge fine motor skill aspect to it. So it's kind of like the video game deterioration, which is reflex-driven. That could be, that but, could but, be but, absolutely reflex-driven. What other people say is also, you know, I'll call it stability and balance. Mm-hmm. People have also said, I know this might, people also said, you know, maybe vision. Tiger Woods has talked about he can't vision, his his vision is not what it was. And so just seeing the undulations and everything else, I think, is another thing. So actually, I think it would be interesting. I think if you talk to a golf expert, they wouldn't be that surprised that you know, got, that the putting <laughs> is something that actually deteriorates yeah, quite I, I'm quickly. I'm going to piggyback off of some of the training data. Stability is something that really deteriorates. And strength does not, interestingly well, enough. Well, that's my point. Right, strength, and this may yeah. be why you can still be a terrific driver, et cetera. And we've seen this, I'm, and this is, I don't want to hijack the conversation to baseball, but Sheffield, who's over 50, was smacking the ball 450 in some videos. This guy is, you know, can't play a Major League Baseball anymore, but can still crush it. And so you can really hit, you can still gain a lot of strength, but, and I know, and that's, this is a test for old people that are given, I'm not sure I pass it very well, is to stand on one foot for with your eyes closed for 30 seconds. I don't and then, it. and it turns no out chance. that as no you chance. get older, you can't do this. You can do it with your eyes open, but with your eyes closed because you lose the, the stability, yeah. and maybe that makes it very hard to putt effectively. Well, either way, I thought it was interesting to say that in some sense, despite his winning, he's actually not a good putter anymore. Yeah. And just to, just so you know, you say, well, maybe he was never a good putter. No, he was the best putter. Yeah. He was in the top 10 in putting for like 15 consecutive seasons. And so now he's actually not even not even an average putter. He's a bad putter on the PGA Tour. And, and if we kind of believe that he is going to be kind of permanently a bad putter now. Correct. Um, does that just kind of mean that his like overall game is just higher variance? Because even a bad yes. putter, you know, Has the way game, he's yeah. going to vi- win tournaments, if he continues to win tournaments, is just basically in, in the kind of getting lucky with the putter and, and, and having, you know, his irons carry him. Well, I think, let me just say, if, if what Adi is saying is true and that it's in some sense you can't fight farther, father time with putting, then what he better do is focus on his iron play so he's hitting eight-foot putts instead of 14-foot putts. And then all of a sudden, father time doesn't care. You're hitting an eight-footer, yeah. and an eight-footer from a 44-year-old is better than a 14-footer from a 30-year-old, yeah. and he'll win he'll tournaments. Win. Now, the other thing, there is one thing that father time does aid us when we get older, and I, we all get older. We do get smarter. And so somehow in golf, you have to figure out a way to leverage right. the, the wisdom mm-hmm. that you wisdom from experience and 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 gain that. And that's the, that's what I think is always. This is one of the the people who really do last a long time in their careers. They do seem to have an, an age potion that they that they seem to be taking, like 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 uh, like Tom Brady. On the other hand, they also are incredibly smart and wise about the way they play, and they and they leverage that to success. I think. By the way, let me just say, in credit to Tom Brady, obviously he takes extraordinary care of himself, but I will say part of it is having a coach that knows how to utilize his diminished skills and no. knows what he can do well and not. And so, you know, any team, as we think about now, obviously one of the other big news items in sports is what's Tom Brady going to do? I think if Tom Brady were to go to another team, 
it's not just the system would be different. You don't have a coach as great as yeah. Belichick that will able to be able to say, you know what, I see what Tom Brady is now. Not the Tom Brady of five years ago, the Tom Brady we have now. And, and has been tracking it very closely correct. for the last Very, decade. very closely. Right. Yeah, no, and I mean, I, that's why kind of, you know, if we are transitioning to kind of free agency and the football, I mean, I would very much like him to just be signed and have this over with. But I, I still am pretty highly confident he ends up with the Patriots because... As you sort of say, there's no way he can walk into a situation right. as good as what he would have just returning to the Patriots. Well, one of my favorite things to do in our show, of course, uh, is the over-under segment. So let's go to it now. It's Warden Moneyball's over-under. All right, guys. So um, since I normally run it, but I'm also sitting in this seat, we might as well do it. Let's. Here's a couple that have caught my eye. We might as well start with the one that talks about golf, since we just talked about Tiger Woods. So this says... pop. Point five, top four finishes for Tiger in the majors. So that even means in four in any of the majors, will he finish in the top four? I would have said win, but let's say this doesn't even say win. This just says top four. It just so, reminds so, us last year, for example, he won one. He won the Masters. Um, I don't remember. He was definitely he won the not, TPC, which is not a no, major. Not a major. But it is a very he big was the tournament. only one that he was a top four in. I think was the Masters. He won right. the Masters. Uh, he and that was the only well, one. I, one fact about Tiger Woods: he seems to be when he's competing, he has an overly large probability of winning when he's up there. Yeah. So oh, his career record is yeah. when he's up there. His career record it's is like unmatched in golf. It's unmatched. So Adi, we'll start with you. All right. Well, given what you've just told me, the odds are uh, overwhelming that he's not going to win one, but that makes sense. But you've expanded this to top four. Right. Well, I'm trying to make it 50-50. I don't want to make it four to one. Uh, I hate to root against Tiger. We tried to do that before. So I'm going to go over. Top four, at least one top Top four four finish finish. in the majors or four of them, right? Shane? I don't want to root against Tiger either, but, uh, you know, this uh, this whole conversation about the putting, putting has given me pause, so I'm going to take the under. Okay, I'll, I'll take the over. I think he'll get hot for one of them, so we'll see what happens. Um, let's now switch quickly to the NBA. So, obviously, the Bucks are the best team in the NBA right now, 46-8, and eight, and I think, as we talked about, have a historic margin. In other words, they have the highest winning mar- average winning margin of any team in the history of the NBA right now. They're 46 and 8. Will they win more than 68 and a half games? They would need to go 23 and 5 the rest of the season, which is a little worse than they are now. Mm-hmm. They've gone 23 and 4 twice, which gives them 46 and 8. So, Shane, I'll start with you. Are the Bucks going to win 69 games or more? I'm going to take the under on this one because of load management. I think the Bucks are going to take the foot off the gas. I don't think they're going to need to win, you know, 23 games the rest of the way. And I think they're going to be looking to the playoffs. So I'm going to take the under. I'll take the under as well, unless they have a legitimate chance to, which I don't think they do, to break the record, which would require them to go something like, 25 and 1 or 2 they would so I think they're going to go under as well I think once they clinch the best record in basketball which they will do I see no reason for them to you know win those last few games right, well, I'm not going to be original uh, I'm going to go under as well here's an extra fact apparently they're the predominant number of games in the last end of the season are against top teams I know that over two-thirds of the games are against so. teams that are likely to make the playoffs right now so let's take one more the last one we have about 30 seconds to go um, does anybody hit more than 51 and a half home runs in the MLB this year? So I'll go first 
with myself. I'll go first since you guys went first in the other two. I will say over. I don't know who it's going to be. I think somebody will hit more than 51 and a half. Adi, 20 seconds left. Under. Under. Over. Over. I think the rule change for the pitchers will affect it. Well, we're going to see. So, guys, this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. On behalf of myself, Shane Jensen, and Adi Weiner, we want to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. We want to thank our producer, Matt Datz, our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, our assistant producer and analyst, Zach Trapkin. Uh, between now and next week, I know there's a lot of sports. For all of us, like myself, there's the NFL Combine. We've got a lot to do, a lot to watch. Between now and then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics. We'll see you next week on Wharton Moneyball. Ball.